How you doing? I'm Jack Humphrey. This is High Performance, our conversation for you every single week. This podcast reminds you that it's within your ambition, your purpose, your story. It's there. We just help unlock it by turning the lived experiences of the planet's highest performers into your life lessons. We speak to the greatest leaders, thinkers, entrepreneurs, and in this case, sports stars on the planet so they can be your teacher. And for the first time since we launched the High Performance Podcast, Damien Hughes is flying solo, ladies and gentlemen. Yet welcome to the first of our special episodes to celebrate the Rugby League World Cup. And over the next few weeks, Damien is going to be speaking to some of the greatest people ever involved in the sport. And Damien has a really rich heritage when it comes to rugby, both union and league. He's consulted some of the most famous teams. He's been to World Cups. He knows this sport inside out. And we actually start with a really, really special episode. This is what's coming your way on this Rugby League World Cup special of the High Performance Podcast. And I had a couple of things happen early in my life that, you know, with my father getting sick and then having to care for him that really accelerated me my desire to succeed because I almost I, I had to succeed to be able to fund my life and help care for my father for me because he loved he didn't want me to see the dark side of the disease and for me that was he was showing me how much he, he loved me he went through that you know to show me that it can be it'll always be all right you know and, and for me that taught me how to love uh, he did that through love I think and Russell just pulled out his pocket a, a membership card Oh, I'm gonna get choked up. With he had my um, father's name on it, and a couple of things he used to say to me before each game. I just didn't expect it. I didn't know where it came from, and I just burst into tears on the field. And he presented it to me, and he said, "No, this is your father's seat in the stadium. It's next to mine. I sit here. It's it'll be a left empty. If you're ever in doubt or you you want to see him, just look to that seat. It'll be in the stadium forever." When I became a, a captain or a dominant leader in my teams throughout my career, I would often ask my team to have arrogance. I believe you need a certain level of internal arrogance. Ultimately, I put it down to this question, would you rather be my friend and lose or would you rather just not be happy with me and win? So get ready to hear from Sam Burgess, a normal guy from Bradford who became a modern day gladiator in this most remarkable of sports. And actually, you're going to hear some very special stories from Sam Burgess. He'll talk about everyday habits that you need to adopt. Um, We will talk about coaches that he's worked with and some amazing stories about Russell Crowe and what Russell did to make him feel welcome when he joined Russell's team. And um, there's a big lesson for everybody there. This is a really fantastic episode. Just a quick reminder, we know that most people that listen to the High Performance Podcast don't actually subscribe to the High Performance Podcast. And we would love you to do that. So wherever you're listening to this, if you can just do us one favour, please hit the subscribe button, hit the follow button, and enjoy this episode of the High Performance Podcast. Professor Damien Hughes talking to Sam Burgess. Enjoy. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. So, Sam, we always kick off these uh, podcasts with the same question. What is high performance? Well, I, I, you know, I think there's a, a couple of different ways you can view high performance. Um, you know, for me, individually, high performance was about just reaching your potential. I mean, that, that's always been a, a goal throughout my career is to, you know, not waste talent, not waste time, uh, not waste opportunity. So, for me, high performance was making the most of myself my, my my mind my physical attributes and then what I can contribute to a team in that sense but yeah i think kind of grand scale high performance collectively is um it's been able to channel everyone's performance so to speak in one singular direction and if you can get on the same path to achieve the same goal i think that's probably um what i would say high performance is getting everyone to believe in the same goal so let's talk about your potential then, because yeah. we've got some history. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. When I think about you, I always think of, you know that scene in Jurassic Park where... I don't, water, watch, I don't watch Jurassic Park. <laughs> right. God, you'll have to explain it to me. Well, there's a scene where like, there's a guy with a cup of water and the yeah. water starts to ripple. Yeah. And you can hear this sort of thud of the dinosaur coming right. up behind them. <laughs> <laughs> and I always think of you in that regard, because I heard about you. Yeah long before I ever met you. So yeah, right. I'd hear people like John Bastian or yeah. Tony Smith or Steve McNamara would say to me, oh, you want to see this kid coming through yeah. at Bradford. Yeah, right. So you yeah. were somebody that had yeah. a huge amount of potential or seen yeah. as recognising it. And I'm interested in terms of when did you know you were good and how did you sort of put in place the structures to maximise that potential? I won't say I ever knew I was good. I got to a point where you know, I was very ambitious, really young, and I had a couple of things happen early in my life that, you know, with my father getting sick and then having to care for him, that really accelerated me, my desire to succeed because I almost I, I had to succeed to be able to fund my life and help care for my father. So that you know, when you put in a position like that, where there's no other choice, you can't really accept failure. It did accelerate me, I think, as a, as a player and as a person. But um, I, I never really felt the pressure of, well, this guy's good. He's got a lot of potential. Because you know, people weren't really saying it to me. I had a really good family. Um, it kept me grounded. But I, was always, I always had a desire to you know, reach the top, which was 
you know, playing the first grade, and then once I hit first grade, I realised, oh, actually, I'm not far, not far off these guys. Yeah, a couple of years in at this place, I can try and I want to try and get right to the top. So, reaching my potential, I guess, just became a, a day-to-day thing. Just trying to always improve, learn, and grow as much as I could along the way. Yeah. So let's go and explore some of those topics because there's a couple of that are really fascinating areas. The one about your dad always intrigues me. Just tell us a little bit more around around your dad and about his illness yeah. and what subsequently. Yeah, well, my, my father was diagnosed with motor neuron disease. Um, you know, I look, thinking, I struggle to think when that when I, we actually got were told that he had MND. I seem to think it was around the time I was 15 or 16, so coming towards the end of school. And when I finished school, I went straight into a full-time position at Bradford Bulls. Yeah, but your dad um, had been a rugby player as well. Yeah, my dad was a rugby player himself. He was, uh, he'd coached all of I have three brothers, Thomas, George and Luke. He'd coached all of us at some stage in our junior career at Jewsbury Moor. And he's just a, a, you know, a wonderful man. He's great, caring, he's, he's gentle, he, he was... Um, Great coach, good father, good friend, all, all all the things you'd want in a father. And he was a big, strong man. He's you know he's um, eighteen stone. He was a front rower himself when he played. So you know he was a strong man. So when he sat us down to tell us he had motor neuron disease, I didn't think a lot of it. I didn't know yeah. what it was, what it meant. Um, so for a couple of weeks, I just got on with life as usual and as normal. But then I decided to. It was actually one of my brothers partners said listen you should take a look at this disease it's it's serious so we had me and luke one day we looked online and you know we figured out it was um, a terminal illness and then that's when it got a bit serious for us uh, you know and as time progressed um my father's illness you know accelerated really quickly and within 18 months to two years he was he was gone so you know in, in that time i'd finished school i was trying to make it as a as a professional athlete me, me and my father lived together at the time and, and became his sole carer which was a, a, a bit of a task yeah. but but at, at the time I didn't understand how hard a task it was uh, uh, what I was actually doing I was care for my father um all day I'd go to train in the morning um I had great next door neighbors and my mum and brothers would help as well but I had nice woman down the street that would come and help clean the house and yeah. whilst I'd be at training they'd come and sit with my dad and then I'd come home and sort of be with my dad and and in, in amongst all that I was trying to become a professional athlete which I ended up playing my goal was to be a first grade player before my dad passed away and uh, thankfully I managed to play I don't know maybe I think 15 games for Bradford yeah. before maybe maybe a few more before what, he passed I, away what age were you 17 when that yeah 18 when he passed away, but I, put, I made my debut for Bradford at seventeen in two thousand and six, and Dad passed away in the middle of two thousand and seven. Yeah. So you know, I, um, and and that was the you know the happiest times for my dad. He'd get to come down to the stadium, we'd get him in the grounds, and he'd love watching his son play rugby league. You know, the, the one of the only sad things about it is my three brothers never became professional athletes um, whilst Dad was around, which is sad. But you know, it's. Um, They've gone on to to have such wonderful careers since then. So it's been, yeah, yeah. It's been so tell us about that caring because I mean, you're describing it in really pragmatic terms that you got on with it and just did it. But actually, there's an awful lot of demands that are being placed on you there. So what what were the kind of things you were having to do for your dad? Well, as 
the disease progressed, it got down to everything really. My, my father, he becomes a like just a vessel. He's he's in a wheelchair. I have to carry him up and down the stairs. Still lived in the same house. To wash him, help him. You know, he couldn't really. He wasn't eating food towards the end. It's you know absolutely everything. He, I learned how to cook through the six months. My dad was a great cook. Yeah. You know. Then he also, I look back now as an adult, as a father, um, and what he actually was doing for me in those twelve or eighteen months, he was preparing me for the rest of my life. Which it's, it's actually really when I look back at, it, I go, wow, he was more intelligent than I thought but he was teaching me how to run a house how to cook how to clean how to manage but we did it in a fun loving caring way yeah but he, he was definitely preparing me for the rest of my life he knew that he had a short space of time to get me ready for the rest of my life uh and and that's that's essentially what I did but in, in terms of care it was it, was, it had to do almost you caring for two bodies really he you know each night he'd sleep with a breathing apparatus on and you know if that breathing apparatus came off his chance he's not there in the morning so i'd end up sleeping next to him in bed and it's just you know it was a loud horrible machine but you know we just got used to that way of life yeah, yeah. um you know but in in terms of care it's it was just what was required at the time there's no other choices so when you look back then at that period but like I know you, you say your dad's preparing you for life in terms of the practical things of cooking and like and like managing a house. What kind of values did it teach you though that you that, that you can look back on now many years later and recognise that actually I learned something really useful there that I'm still using today. Well, the the, the greatest lesson I learned out of that time in my life was that. Um, you know, the simple things in life are so important. You know, I, I look back at what made me happy, him happy, in some of the hardest times I've, I've been through were the simplest things. Going to Morrison's, getting out of the house, going to Morrison's, doing his shopping, and just being outdoors. He built a conservatory on the back of the house, and when it rained, he used to love sitting in the conservatory, listening to the rain hit the roof, and listening to Nora Jones. And for those, looking back at those moments, those were the simplest times with you know no frills nothing special but that's what made him happy sitting in the back and in the sunshine there as well with the doors up and listening to the birds tweet so f for me it always gave me a you know when my life's been chaotic over the past yeah. 15 years it's always been a great place for me to go back and go, get back to the simple things in life that really mean you know what what really means something to you it's been around your family. You know, and he also taught me, um, you know, compassion, really, to be compassionate and to be loving. Go on, tell us more about that. Well, you know, my, my father, for such a big, for such a big, strong man, he was a very soft, gentle, caring man as well. And in those, um, in those last 12 to 18 months, he never once complained. He never, he never once was angry. He very rarely got upset. Um, you know, and he's always happy, and he would always joke. And I, I know he was doing that for me because he loved. He didn't want me to see the dark side of the disease. Right. And for me, that was he was showing me how much he, he loved me. He went through that, you know, to show me that it can be. It'll always be all right, you know. And, and for me, that taught me how to love. Uh, he did that through love, I think. So, wow. Mm. So tell us then, 
you're learning all these lessons. You've been immersed in learning about the simple things, learning to love and show vulnerability mm. for others. And you're going into like an adult world, a hugely competitive world at Bradford Bulls at mm. 17, where you get in this immersion in, in a rugby education mm. and yet you're getting a, an education in life at home. Tell us about those early experiences then when you go into Bradford, you're a 17 year old prodigy, you've got this huge potential. What was that like? Well, I, I, it's freedom for me at the time. Um, if I'm honest, you know, home life was hard as, as much as I talk about that with great enthusiasm, it was really hard when I look back at it. So that, that time away from then going into that environment, the high performance environment, chasing a dream of becoming a professional athlete. Um, f for me, that was a tiny bit of freedom yeah. uh, in my life. So it, it gave me an opportunity to, my thoughts weren't so clouded. I didn't overthink my position, what my potential is. It, for me, it was a place to go in, be around a group of guys that were fun, um, happy, were all striving to be better. Um, so for me, it was a place to go and be free yeah train work as hard as i could have some fun you know be a child at times um so it it, it was you know the, the more i look back at my career in those early years it certainly shaped how i approached turning up every day to training yeah happy grateful all, all those sorts of words and who took you under your wing at that time and sort of and gave you an education in being an elite rugby player. There was actually a few. I, I, I was so fortunate, Bradford Bulls at the time. In, in the early parts of my career, I was surrounded by some great, great men. But you know, in that group of men, uh, I had such a great mix of leadership, friendship, everything. So with you know, with Andy Lynch at training, he was the ultimate professional. He taught me discipline, extras, routine. In the car, Joe Van Nye was almost like he was a big cuddly teddy bear. He taught me how to be happy and joke around and have fun and cuddle and, and not take things too seriously. Glenn Morrison, ultimate competitor. Like he would compete at everything, 100 miles an hour. So I'm watching and learning this guy. Shantaine Harpy was skillful and, and jazzy and fun and wore cool clothes and he, he was a bit glitz and glam. And, uh, and Leslie was a rock star. You know, he was powerful. Um, he would compete on every game. I think he scored 150 tries in 148 games for Bradford. So amongst the five players that I really probably looked up to and around, I had such a wide group of personalities, really. And as a young child, as a young man, I, I had a knack of taking what I liked from each one, like, a bit like a sponge. I used to say the sponge analogy. I'd yeah. soak up what I wanted and squeeze out what I didn't. Because what always intrigued me about that period, Sam, is that you went in there and weren't cowed by it. You weren't intimidated by that. Mm. Like, when I watched you, you always looked like you thrived in it, mm. that you were open to it. Mm. And that, to me, was your superpower at that mm. time, that, that you weren't going in there and being intimidated by going into this environment. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I've, I've never thought of it like that. Never entered my mind to be intimidated. I felt really comfortable around the players. Um, and I, I did feel like I had a bit of respect amongst them for some reason. Yeah. Um, when I spoke, they'd, they'd listen. Or when I had a question, that they would answer me with integrity. Um, you know, and I'd see some other interactions, but I always seemed to listen a little bit more. Yeah. Which for, So then, in turn, you feel more comfortable in that space. Then I also started playing really young. 
and I felt like I could add to the team. I was very adamant that I could add to the team. I was a thorn in Steve Mack's backside, I think, <laughs> in my early years. I'll tell you a story. So I was a, I was very confident um, that I could add um, some value to the team, and I was desperate to play first team. I didn't know when my dad was going to, and I was desperate. Okay, like, and when you when you're faced with a desperate man, it's a person you don't want to face every day because they're willing to do anything. And that was me at that that point. So I was playing in the under twenties, and that held me back in the preseason to try and get me a bit stronger and build my levels of strength and everything up, so I could try and push through at some point in my career. Now, I ended up saying to the club, I said, I need to play. I need the money. I need, you know, I need the win bonus to play in the twenties. So I can, I've got bills to pay, I've responsibilities. So they start playing me. I played two or three games. I was feeling good. So I knocked on Steve Mack's door. I said, I, I think I can play in your first team. I'm ready to play. You said that too. Yeah, yeah. I said I'm ready <laughs> to play. Um, I think I can add to the team. I can could do a better job than a couple of players. He said, Oh no, you look, Sam. You, you know, you can't. You've got to go and work on this. I said, all right, what do I need to work on? You know, in market defence, you sometimes get a bit lazy. The top grade, you can get caught out. Yeah. I said, no problem. My next game I played, I would nail that, that side of my game. I go in next Monday, knock on his door. Steve, I'm doing it perfect luck, showing stuff. I'm not going to let you down. I'm going to do a job for you. No, no, you've got to next week. It'd be, sometimes when the ball goes this way, you can switch shot, you know. Okay, no worries. I'm going to be perfect in that area of my game. So I go be perfect and knock on his door. Steve, I can add something to your team. I can do a better job than someone else. I know I can bring you more. But he's thinking, what is this kid talking about? <laughs> I'm 17 and look back and think it's mad. But, you know, the persistence got me there in the end. I, pl- I played nine games of under 20s and then I, I went straight into the first team and, and that's it after that. But I didn't play any reserve grade, I didn't play anything like that. But um, I was very fortunate how we got my star, one of the players um Matty James actually yeah, yeah. was in the team playing Leeds at Leeds which was a huge game I just had a feeling just had a feeling one day that I just had a feeling it was my time because in the captain's run the night before I jumped in which you really don't do I was 18th man I jumped in I did a set or two practice I just must have had a feeling the next morning about nine o'clock Steve called me up he said how are you feeling I said yeah I'm, I'm good he said do you think you'll play tonight I said yes yeah, I do. Uh, I was still, I was lying in bed. I was like, yeah, yeah, I do. He said, well, um, you're in the team, Mike James is sick. I said, great. That's great, I'll see you there tonight. Ran downstairs, said, Dad, I'm playing tonight, I'm playing Hedlund, I'm making my debut. And what was your dad's reaction to that? Yeah, no, it was just, I think he expected it. He was, Did he? My dad was calm, you know, he was a very calm man. He just, it's great, son, you deserve it, you've worked hard, you know, he was, he was just good. And for me, it was like... Um, that's why I was, I was I was chasing that game. That's all I wanted. I was just wanted that one game. So I played my debut at Headley in front of a packed out crowd. It's 27,000 people there, and I'll never forget going out for warm up and looking over to see Lee and Jamie Peacock was one of my idols as a kid growing up, and he was warming up on the other side of the field. We're talking and what I couldn't hear anyone. And the first time that happens in your career, it's it's a really unfamiliar feeling because I'm used to playing under twenties games, you can hear everyone in the crowd. Yeah, it's your mum and dad trying get your tackles right, you know. But this game, you can't hear a thing. It's a buzz, you know. There's a and and at Headingley, 
they're a couple of meters away from the from the field. It's just a magical place to play. And I guess that was it. I was in. I, I'd got in the squad and um, I played my debut. And I mean, from then on, I I, I played first grade. I, I never came out of first grade. So take us in that dressing room then, because. Mm. I've been in dressing rooms where you see kids making the debut and I think sometimes it's almost like like they look like competition winners. Do you know what I mean? Like they're looking around thinking, do I deserve to be here? And yeah. you you sort of seeing people that you've idolised. And What's going on for you in that dressing room before you walk out there? Well, I, I can't remember the exact detail of how I felt in the shed. I remember how I felt when I ran on the field. Go on. And I remember looking around, I was just like it's euphoric. Um like, wow, this is it. This is what it feels like. And it was great. It was a magical feel. I'm looking over at the other team, going, oh, I like watching that player play. It's good, you know. And then I'm thinking, oh, I want to get that player. I want a piece of him, you know. Yeah. And that, that was how my mind used to work. So, you know, I wanted a piece of Jamie. Like, I was a 17-year-old kid. He was a great brand captain. I wanted a piece of him. I don't know where that came from, whatever, maybe my competitive edge, but it's just such a surreal feeling. And then when I, when I got, finally got on the field, you know, I added a bit to the team as I told Steve Mack I would. I said I can add to the team. Uh, in, in my first debut, I added more defensively than I did offensively. But I kept telling him I could be more a better offensive player. I could play better on the ball for him. But in my debut, I was defensively better than I was offensively. So, so if anyone's listening to this then, Sam, and they're thinking that, that, that what you're describing is a real innate sense of confidence that I can do this and I can add value, how do you walk that line between either being arrogant or delusional of thinking that you're better than you are and actually just being really blunt and honest that I am as good as I say I am. Well, I mean, look, it's it's very easy to sit and talk about it now when it's been and gone, but at the time, um, it, you know, it wasn't an outward confidence. My conversations I'd had with Steve Macker behind a closed door, and yeah. it's, it's just in my head. And it's just how I speak with Steve, and I was just frank. Yeah, I wasn't out saying that to everyone else. It was just internal conversations the whole time. Right. Now, and what made me believe and have the confidence to say that to Steve is, I didn't think I was delusional because I, I had a good gauge on what was happening around me. Yeah, I trained extremely hard. I could see how much I was my input, and I could see input everywhere else. I, I didn't believe it was a delusional thing. I, I certainly had confidence, but it was an internal confidence. Yeah. And whether you want to say it's an arrogance or an internal arrogance, I was never outwardly. No, no. Uh, because in the environment I was brought through in, you, you get knocked out of you pretty quick yep. if you are. Uh, and in the family that I was in, it was just not how we were brought up, you know. You know, we were taught always to, to believe in yourself, but if you ever stepped out of line or got that, made that belief into arrogance, then yep. you got it smacked out of you pretty quick. So, But th there is a line. I, I do believe there is a line, and it's, it's a line that... You, you know, I've certainly battled with it through my career and more so in a team's perspective, when I became a, a captain or a dominant leader in my teams throughout my career, I would often ask my team to have arrogance. I believe you need a certain level of internal arrogance. Yeah, yeah. Not never external, but when you get on that field, you have to have that belief or you have to have some part of your ego that's saying, we're not losing today. There is a line with that, and you know, we see athletes step over it all the time. But you know, I, I think throughout my career, I, I was pretty good at holding the line of just being confident in my own ability. Yeah. So you go on then. You make your debut. You establish yourself. You you're eighteen. You get called up by Great Britain for that first series against New Zealand. Yeah. 
did that feel a step up again for you? Yeah, that was the next year. Oh, whoa, I'm playing in the I'm playing against people from Australia now and yeah. New Zealand. I think I was the second youngest player to ever play. But then the first youngest player to ever start. I started in the front row in my test debut with Adrian Morley uh, as my other front rower and Jamie Peacock as my captain and left edge back rower. So for me as a 18-year-old boy, I'm a yucky young man. It's a bit of a surreal, it was a surreal place to be. That's where you start thinking, whoa, do, should I be here right now? Am I, do I fit in this group? Am I at this level yet? Right. So there is that self-talk. Um, of wow, this is a, this is a big step up. You know, I've, I've been used to playing the Super League yeah. around people that I'm comfortable with. Whereas now you're going into a new environment with complete players that you've competed against all year, almost learnt to hate throughout the year, yeah. and then now you've got to play a game with them against the Kiwis. You know, so so you, you do have. I I certainly had a tiny bit of self talk in that in those early moments in my career. But so what were you saying to yourself then? So, geez, can I, am I going to be good enough? Will, will I be strong enough? Uh, you know, have I done enough work? You know, a lot of, it's a lot of in, internal communication like that. But right. I was very fortunate. I was, I was really lucky to, I got a lot of good breaks in my career early. So let's just stop there, Sam, in terms of, there's a really interesting bit here that a lot of young players talk about playing with freedom and almost that naivety when they go into like the early stages of their career. And that's what you've described in lots of ways. I often think the key then to sustain a career is the ability then to cope with pressure and expectation. Uh, you know, when you know you're starting, when people know your name, you could start developing a reputation. Mm. How did your thinking change from those early days then of going in with that almost that youthful naivety to then eventually coping with all those demands? I never actually felt um, personally a great deal of pressure to perform for external people or external for external reasons. I mean, you know, a lot of my pressure was, you know, my own pressure or um, my own expectation of myself or my expectation to give back to the team or to my coach that I'm playing for at the time. But there's certainly, it's certainly true when you come in, you're free. People look at you a bit differently. You're younger. They might just brush past you in the preparation, so you might get away and you might be able to sneak up on people. But for me, I came in pretty hot and hard. Yeah. So I was on everyone's mind pretty quick. So I, I learned early that to stay in front of the game, I had to keep developing, keep adding bits to my game, out thinking players, you know, being able to work out where I can get an advantage on my opposition or on on, on different players within the game. That's something I progressed over my career it wasn't especially when I got to Australia yeah. when when I finally got everything's on TV the press are everywhere you are scrutinised praised on everything you do uh, that's when I learnt really how to really fine tune that skill go on tell us more about that well you know like well, whilst I was playing in England there'd be I think three games a week maybe on TV and not everything's broken down or evaluated and, and dissected yeah. whereas when I moved to Australia and I went over there with big profile. My game was scrutinised and being an English player in the NRL following Adrian Morley, who'd gone over there and trailblazed it. Gareth Ellis was actually currently there and doing a great job. And I was a young player that came over, you know, with a big reputation. I'd already played maybe 10 or 12 test matches by then. I'd just scored a double against the Aussies in 2009 in a final 
I scored two one from halfway line, which is probably the longest try I've ever scored. <laughs> but I did against the Aussies in a final. Yeah. So the Aussies stood up and said, "Hang on, who's this kid? You know, we we keep our eye on him." So I understood when I got there. I got off the plane. I landed in Sydney. There would have been twenty cameras at the airport waiting for me when I got into the country, which was a it's a weird feeling because it's not like that here. Yeah. I had to go. I said, I'll, I'll go straight to the club. I want to go straight to the club. I want to meet the players. Yeah. I had to do a press conference. It was actually my 21st birthday to 14th of December. So I went to the club. I did a press conference. I am here. <laughs> it's nice to be in Australia. Uh, and then I went down into the changing rooms. I met all the players. Uh, and they were doing an afternoon session with the under 20s. I didn't have any boots with me. So I asked the team manager, I said, if you can get me some boots, I want to train today. I want to train with the team. So that was my introduction to Australia. So I trained the first day I landed and I trained for the week before Christmas and integrated myself in the, into the team. But I, I understood extremely early that, um, wow, you're on show here all the time. You have to be on your game all the time. So what kind of challenges did they throw up at you? Because I imagine you've got a big target on your back now. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, the other teams and players, they want to test out your toughness. Um, I had a great friend in my mind saying, listen, they're going to come for you. <laughs> you got to get ready. So this whole time I'm working myself up. I remember I played a... Wayne Bennett picked me in the in the NRL All-Stars team before I played a game in Australia. Right. Which I thought was, you know, is very random. But he is a very clever coach, and he, I think, he just wanted to put me in that environment. So he picked me with the top twenty players in the NRL to play against the top twenty Indigenous players in the NRL. I'd never played in the NRL before, so I'm playing with Cam Smith, Darren Lockyer against Jonathan Thurston, Greg Inglis, and it was just like it was an amazing experience. But in that game, my same friend saying, "Mate, they're coming for you." So they're going to come and try and bash you. They want to fight you. So I'm all week I'm working myself up for this. Yeah. I got into this game and the first bit of confrontation, I, I wanted to fight, <laughs> you know, but yeah, I yeah. think, I think it set the tone of who I was and, and what I was bringing to the competition. See, uh, but I love that idea that you've just described this friend in my head. Yeah. Tell us, like, explain what you mean by that. It was, no, it was one of my friends. It was, a, it, was, it was one of my great friends, a, a person that I respect a lot, um, who's watched a lot of NRL. Right. It, and he was constantly, we'd speak almost daily at the time, he was constantly telling me that, you know, you've got to be on your game. You're English. You're the big, you know, play for South Sydney. We're a huge club. You know, Russell Crowe's the owner. They're going to want a piece of you. Russell Crowe brought me to Australia. I want to come to him. Yeah, they're going to want a piece of you. So I'm getting more and more worked up. I'm thinking, they all want to kill me. They all want to fight me, you know. So my first game, someone, I made a big tackle. Someone came in and pushed me. I stood up and my reaction was to, like, all right, protect. Yeah. Uh, And I got ready to, we never had a fight, but I think everyone said, well, this guy is... It might be like you can't get on top of this guy. Yeah, yeah. And it was a good place for me to start. See, but that's very different, though, isn't it? From like when you've come in at Bradford, you yeah. like you're the one setting your own internal expectations, yeah. and you're the one targeting. I'm going to go after Peacock. Mm. I'm going to go yeah, after the big yeah. names and have a piece of them. Mm. So you've gone from being the hunter mm. to being the hunted. Yeah. What does that do for your mindset? That well, it was actually good. It, when you're the hunted, like I think you you dot your eyes and you cross your T's with a bit more energy. Um, and you're 
you're on edge. Like you, when you're the hunted, you've you've got to keep everything looking. You've got to look around. You've got to yeah. be on your game the whole time. When you're the hunter, sometimes you might get a bit complacent, or there might be, you know, maybe every now and then. So being the hunter didn't actually work too bad for me. I coached this year. Yeah, I coached on my first year as a head coach, and um, I use this term. One of my main phrases throughout the year: the team that I coached were had not been very successful for the past decades. They were almost not respected within the competition that I coached. And I, co- I said that they were the hunted. I called them the hunted. And I said, no more. I said, we're now the hunters. I said, we will be the hunters of this competition. I said, we will get the respects of this whole league. I said, we are no more the hunters. We are now the hunters. And that was our, our motto for the year. Yeah, yeah. That, you know, so we, they called themselves the hunters and they really loved it. Uh, so it's funny you brought that up there. So, so it's funny, if they ever watch this, they'll, they'll really enjoy that. <laughs> yeah. but, so were you actually doing that? So although people are hunting you, yeah. were you still having that hunter mindset of your, yeah. like, your go- like, were you identifying who are the big dogs? I'm going to go after them. I'm going to make my mark against them. Or was it more just, mm. I'm going to set my own standards and I'm not worried what anybody else does? It's a tiny bit of both. In the beginning, I didn't really set that intention of, all right, I want this guy, but I was a very competitive player. Yeah. Um, I had my own had my own goals and outcomes that I wanted. Um, but also, as a collective, I'd gone to a team that were not renowned to win. Like, they were bottom middle of the table yeah not won a premiership for 40 years so although i had my mindset i was conscious of growing the mindset of everyone around me in the environment and and the organization that i went to so as much as i'm thinking when perform hit my standards it was also about all right how can i influence the other 25 guys to get somewhere near my way of thinking because it's kind of pointless me being in that mindset if yeah, everyone yeah. else is not there. So my thinking became wider almost instantly when I got to Australia. I don't know why, I just felt like in, in England I, I was in a winning environment. Yeah. I, was, I came from a winning culture and then I went to a culture that wasn't a winning culture. So I, I quickly learned to go, all right, well, i got to expand. i got to learn to influence a bit quicker. That was my framework, but you're getting a game of rugby league. You know, someone in that game would be trying to stamp their authority on the game and go, okay, well, that's the guy that I'm going to, That's I want a piece of that guy. Or I could flow in and out of being the hunter or the hunted or, you know, or wanting to assert my authority on someone or not, depending on how the game was flowing. I love that because that reminds me of an interview we did with uh, a guy called Sia Khaleesi, yeah. who was is the Springboks captain in Rugby yeah, Union. Yeah. And he talks about how he doesn't need to be the vocal leader at the front. So like sometimes he'll hand it over to other members of the team and say, you're better qualified, you speak here, yeah. and I'll sit out. So you've gone in there as a leader, the focal point, the big signing from England coming in, and yet you're describing how you can sort of float in and out and develop the mindset in others. Now, there's lots of people listening to this podcast that are interested in how do you get others to come with you? It's great being a high performer yourself, but how do you get others to adopt that? So give us some of the ideas or the techniques you did to raise the standards itself when you went in there. How I personally thought I helped raise standards, I had to really let them know that I was there to win first. I had to let my team, I had to let my players know that, all right, I was there to win. And then 
it gave me the, the platform, the foundation to be able to say, to challenge them when I didn't believe they were doing the right things. I don't think if I had their respect or I don't think if I made my intentions clear that I was there to win, that I could have that platform or foundation to be able to challenge them in areas that have probably not been challenged before. But you know, it's a great story that I've not told them very often. We, you know, my first year at South Sydney, um, we we did okay. We were better than we were the year before. Um, but we weren't where we needed to be. Uh, and we were playing St. George, had, who ended up going on to win the competition that year. We were playing them the last game of the season at St. George, we, and we had to beat them by four points to make the finals. I was the ultimate optimist. I thought there's no way we we're going to lose the game. So gone in supremely confident. And uh, their back rower, Ben Cray, scored a hat-trick in the first half over a certain player on, on an edge. And it just, I realised they're not ready to win yet. We didn't have that steely focus, the mentality right. to win. We weren't ready. We didn't want to. We lose this game. We're on our holidays. You win this game. Oh, I've got another week training. You win another. You, you could have a potential. Yeah, yeah. You know, but to me, it wasn't about the holidays or time. It was about winning, becoming better, and eventually winning a championship. So after that that game, I evaluated who I thought was ready to win with with a couple of other people, and we sat down and we said, "Listen, I think these guys are in it to win. Or these guys are not." So you as a playing group, you and a few of the other players had it this was chat. Actually, yeah, I had one other player and two of the administration. Right, okay. Yeah, said, I think these players are in for, to win. I don't think these guys are. So if we're going to win, we should replace a few of these guys. So what were you, like, what was your assessment based on then? So you're making those judgment it's calls? Just, on a feeling. Right. I mean, when you're out on the field and when you're in such close proximity to these people for so long... You, uh, you go through so many emotions together. You win, yeah. lose, you're injured, disappointment, selection, not selection. That's a lot of emotion to go through and you're close with these people. You learn to understand them and you learn to like know what makes them tick. You, yeah. you learn about the person. So you become very in tune with these, you know, with 25 people. So you, you kind of, I think you figure them out. And then when it came to crunch time in some of the bigger games, a lot of the characteristics that you might have had in your mind, they were exposed in the big moments. So the, it reminds me, again, as you're talking on this, that I know we're going to talk about um, your experience on like the SAS programme mm. in Australia, but one of their criteria for selection is simply, do I want to be stood next to you yeah, when the right. shit hits a fan? Yeah, yeah. Was that similar to the kind of questions you were asking at that yeah, time? Yeah, that's exactly the question we were asking. Because... This is a period of your career then that fascinates me because as like we were saying for people listening that mm. I knew you when you were at Bradford when you're that young boy coming through and I I always think that one of your greatest strengths was you were the glue guy mm. put Sam into a group and you'll bring everyone together mm. you know you that I remember Tony Smith saying this about you when you first came into the national team that mm. You know, you'd bring in disparate parties, people sat on their own, you'd be the guy to bring them over and you'd chat with them. So the value you offered off the field was immense for what happened on it and creating team spirit and harmony. Mm. But what you're describing now is you're not just being the glue guy, you're actually being the guy that's calling people out and you're not everybody's friend. Sometimes you've got to be the person to deliver some pretty stark messages for them. So how did you do that while still keeping that basic humanity and treating people with decency, but letting them know that 
they needed to up the game. That's a hard path of leadership. You know, it's, yeah. Leadership's not a popular place. Ultimately, I put it down to this question, would you rather be my friend and lose or would you rather just not be happy with me and win? I feel like by the time you get to that second option, the thinking, geez, this guy's sometimes a bit hard or whatever, but you're a winner and you probably understand or hopefully you might understand the route that got us there. And it's actually because I, I cared about people. I wanted them to reach the potential. Uh, so it actually comes from a really caring place, you know. Right. And I, I always had a, I always had a f- fair way of delivering things to people. And I was never rude or aggressive. I was just honest. And I, I think leadership, greatest quality you can have as a leader is being authentic. Um, and I just always stuck by that. If I was authentic and I could stand by everything I said, then I was doing a good job. And don't, don't get me wrong, I get it wrong at times. But I was man enough to say, listen, yeah, I was, I'm totally wrong. So give us an example of when you did that and then like, tell us the conclusion of how that played out. Well, in 2014, when we won the championship, I decided that I was leaving to go and play rugby union at the end of the year. Um, so I knew I, there was a fin- I had a finish line here. And when there was a finish line in, in your sights, um, I think it's easier to make better decisions throughout the year. So I'd, I'd chosen to abstain from alcohol. I didn't want anyone to be able to say, listen, you you didn't give everything that year. So, And I'd made a few commitments at the start of the year. So there's a couple of times during the year I'd be challenged with the team who I you know, loved and cared for a lot. But come for a beer and we'd play away in Gold Coast. And I was living with Ben Teo at the time, right. a great friend of mine. But he's a madman. He's mad. And he was desperate to go out for a beer in Gold Coast after we just won a game. I said, we're not going out. There's too much risk. I know you're a bit crazy, Ben. And I could see that look in his eyes. You know, he was, he had the glares. He was fun. He was bouncing. He's already dancing. We're doing a recovery <laughs> session in the pool. It's 11 o'clock at night. And he's bouncing around, splashing. I'm going for a beer. I've got my jeans. I said, no, you're not. We're not. No one's leaving the hotel. We're staying in the Gold Coast, like in the mixer. I can hear the music from the nightclubs pumping. And that's, right. all, that's all he wanted to, where he wanted to be. And I'll never forget, we had a, the whole squad sat down and the coach saying, all right, well, what are we doing? I said, "We're not. no one's going out. Right. Not one player's going out. If you want to have a beer, stay in the hotel, you're not going. And Ben Tia stood up, he's like, mate, we're going out, Sam, just because you're not drinking. I said, no, I, I'm not, I don't want you to not drink. If you want to drink, have a drink. It's your prerogative. I said, you're not going out. I said, because if something goes wrong, it can derail the whole season. We, you know, In the second third of the year, we were doing very well. I remember feeling at the time, I'm going, oh, my God, this is not going down well. And, and Ben's fighting for the other 20 guys, you know, they've all said, Ben, take him on, you know. Yeah, yeah. That day, take him on in front of everyone. So he stood there going, Sam, shut up, we're going out. And I'm saying, no, you're not. No one's going out. And the coach is sort of saying, yeah, in fact, I think you should stay in. And the boys are, boo, Sam, you're boring. It's not, we're going out. I said, you're like, bottom line, not going out. I said, you'll thank me when we win. I think a few of them snuck out anyway. You know, it's like, <laughs> but they had, they had a good time, but they were behaved. You kind of put them on notice a bit, you know, and, um, but you know, that, that's one time that stands out because it was, it was hard because I love these guys and I, they're working the backsides off for the team. But I knew if we stayed in and stayed out, it's another tick you're putting in your mind for when you get to that a deep moment in the back end of the year, all those ticks, right, that, that you've ticked along the way, they add up and they count. They, so then that, when that self-doubt or that 
that lack of belief might enter your mind at the deep stage when you're going to make three tackles in a row in the 70th minute of a big final and there's no doubt saying have I done the work have I made the right decisions because you've, you've banked them up for like 40 weeks so it all adds up and that's what I was trying to get so we were unbreakable in the mind everyone Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I love that idea that you're saying about just the tick box because mm. confidence is built on evidence, isn't it? Yeah, if you believe you can do something, yeah. if you can believe you win a grand final, you've got to have the evidence yeah. that you've made the hard choices. Mm. So tell us about that mindset of the tick box, of adding up the amount of ticks to eventually get you to a grand final. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted the boys used to joke around about we do a lot of process. We had great methods and great process, but... The pleasure, oh, we're just ticking a box. But, you know, that ticking a box thing is actually, it does work. How I was, like, safe-proof in my mind and trying to safe-proof the team's mind was about making some good choices, right? And if you can consistently make good choices, you, you get in a good habit of making them, whether that be at home when you're cooking or when you're rushing around to get up to an appearance and you've not really had the right nutrition and you're stopping to get a shop and there's a choice between one thing and the other and you choose the right or the better option once you get better at making better choices it also translates into in the back end of the you know the games you're in habits of making good choices yeah i'll just do my job here i'll tie in just in case because for the last nine months you've learned to make better choices you can't do that overnight did a lot of work on it myself mentally to understand that. Did a lot of meditation. I did a lot of learning about psychology of performance. Yeah. Um, so it, it was a learned thing for myself, but I knew that if we could do it collectively, we'd have much better chance of success. Because what you're describing there is what does like the author James Clear talks about habit stacking mm. that. You do so. It's like that famous speech from that American general that said, "If you want to change the world, make your bed." Because yeah, the idea yeah, that if you've made yeah, your bed, yeah, yeah. you've established a sense of order that yeah. like stacks on top of each other during yeah, the day. Yeah. So tell us some of the habit, like the first easy steps that you got people doing that then led on to better habits. Yeah, well, well, what a lot of it started. The better habits started from away from the game. So in the preseason, we'd all have to stand up and say, "Okay, for the next for the next four weeks, uh, I'm going to make better choices with." this part of my life and you'd stand up you'd say it out loud and right. you'd be account- and it might be something silly right some of the guys like drinking Coca-Cola 
right? Yeah. They say, well, for four weeks, instead of having three cans a day, I'm going to just have one can every second day of Coca-Cola. Mm-hmm. And we do that often, almost through the year, you know. Yeah. All right, I like ice cream on a Friday night. I'm not going to have ice cream Friday nights. But by the time Friday night came around, your body's craving for that bit of ice cream. You go, you go to the freezer to get it. And you go, oh, wait, I've, I've committed you're teaching yourself to be more disciplined and there's a greater purpose, really. And it's not about yourself, it's about a, about a team environment. So, so that was a couple of things. But then it, within the four walls of training, our process when we entered the building, there was a lot of things to get through, right? You know, so, but and it was a pain in the backside. You know, you got to get in, you got to weigh in, do all your, you, you had to about 12 different stations you had to get through and jot down where your body's at your stretching processes your measurements on your all your things yeah you know it was a bit of a process before you got the day started but a lot of it was about just training behavior and making sure that you tick things off we implemented some funny fine systems a bit of a kangaroo court for those that missed it or didn't fill things out properly right. or skip you know so we we had fun with it along the way too we don't want it to be too regimented and, and not a fun environment but th- those were the sort of little things that over time, really added up to, to team success. So what are the kind of habits that you've taken from that period of your life when you were a competitive athlete that you still do today then? Well, I, mean, I, I have routine. You know, me and my brothers have got a couple of businesses together. Um, what it's given us is great structure around our business and our, our process of decision-making um, and and what it's best for best for the business you know and uh, so it's just led us into the next stage of our life and given us great habits yeah you know and, and also married with a, a winning mentality i think them part, part together is, is a great thing so it, it does certainly I, I look back at my career and it's going to help me for the rest of my life yeah yeah without a doubt so let's come back to that other topic then of having a deadline mm. because i was quite struck when you just described that period there going up to 2014 you decided you were going off to union so you were going to leave souths but what i saw was the parallels that you had that deadline around your dad's illness and wanting to get into the team there and it was almost that that race against time to hit the targets how important is a deadline well i think it's very important yeah. when you when you just put it like that it's it's really important I've never really looked at it like that before. So I think you can see it's important. Those deadlines that I've had in my career, you've, you, generally if you've got a goal in, in mind and there's a deadline on it, you can get there more than often. That. You do put a deadline on each year. You've, the deadline is getting to the to the grand final. It's funny, you just, as you mentioned there, my two deadlines, I didn't have a choice about the result. You know, yeah. at, at the end of 14, I didn't see myself coming back to rugby league at the time. Right. So it was final, you know, and playing before my dad passed away, I had to do it because that was final, you know. And I actually did both. I hit both targets before the deadline. It's funny, I should put more deadlines on throughout my career. <laughs> no, but it's interesting because cause there's a finality to those two deadlines, yeah, that you yeah, said, yeah. that suddenly gave you that, yeah. that desperation, that focus, mm. that win at all cost mentality mm. to get there. And I'm wondering... I suppose my question is about for a lot of people listening to this, they're not going to have something as final as that. So sometimes it might be a longer term project they're working on. And I'm interested about how you can take the power of a deadline some in situations sometimes where it might drift through, it might be a longer term project. Mm. 
you've got to be careful the power of a deadline might be too consuming too I think that's another thing you've got to be careful of but um, when I got to South Sydney the the goal was to win the premiership you know Russell Crowe great friend he's a very passionate guy loves the club and that was my promise to him when he when he bought me I said I want to turn your team to a winning team but you're 20 years old yeah, when you're having that conversation. I, I, bold, I had a bold mind when I was young. <laughs> so it's, it's weird. But, you know, it's a, but I knew that wasn't going to be a first-year job. I, I knew that. Yeah. I, I almost knew it wasn't a second-year job. I thought it might have been a third-year job. Right. I thought I had a chance in the third year. And then I thought the fourth year, it's here. And we, we should have won in the fourth, but, and we won it in the fifth. So yeah. it was a five-year plan, really. But we got there in the fifth year. Yeah, yeah. But so that was a longer, that was a longer drawn out goal, essentially, really. But the finality of me leaving was I, I promised this thing here. I yeah. can't fail now. So there is, I think there is a benefit in when there isn't like a, a no second option or there is no other alternative. You must get the job done. But tell us what a commitment does. So again, you're talking about making something quite public like it, it, or you've made a promise to somebody whether it's to your dad mm. or whether it's to Russell Crowe mm. that I've made a promise and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to let you down on this mm. what does that do for your mindset when you make that well it, it makes you accountable like once you're outwardly outward with your um, intention you become then accountable you know and if you don't deliver you know there's another saying uh, Jamie Peacock is a great great friend of mine is a great yeah. leader He's he's really big on um, you deliver what you say, you know. Now because if you don't deliver on your word, then like who are you? And I, I guess that was a you know when you're outward with your um, intentions or with your goals, then you become accountable for that. If you're willing to do the work to get there, then I don't think there's any reason why you shouldn't be bold. Or have the courage to say what you believe. Yeah. Tell us about Russell Crowe. Because he's phoning you up at 20 years of age. You're a kid from Bradford. You're getting a call from a Hollywood superstar inviting yeah. you to be part of his project. Yeah, no, it was, it's surreal at the time. Um, it's funny because, I, yeah, I, I don't really get, I'm not starstruck or I thought it was cool. Um, you know, at the time, I, I really wanted to go to the NRL. I wanted to go and play in Australia. And by chance, he'd seen me play in London. He was over filming a movie, uh, Robin Hood, at the time in England. And he saw me play and he got my phone number somehow and called me out of the blue, which was a bit of a shock. <laughs> it's weird. It's <laughs> the gladiator calling me, you know. He was a very passionate man. He spoke well. He was calm. Um, I met him, I'd say, a week or two later. With I took a few of my friends down to meet him for dinner. I just took my older brother, Chris Feather, uh, Wayne Godwin, Jimmy Evans, and Dean Widders, like I took a, a gang of people down for dinner uh, and we just had a great night. We ended up having a lovely dinner and we had a few beers actually. And then we ended up prank phone calling people out of Russell's phone. It was hilarious. <laughs> we were prank phone calling some of the most fa the famous. Like who? Yeah, we, we were ringing a couple of famous actors. <laughs> ringing it. We were, I think we rang Shane Warne, <laughs> ringing Shane Warne at the time, God bless him. But, you know, we were just, Dean Widders is a, a bit of a character and good friends with Russell, so we're pranking these people. And, he's thought, and that was my introduction to him. I thought, what a guy, you know. But then I went down a day later to the movie set he was filming in, in Derby at the time. I went to his trailer and you got to think, big Hollywood movie, $250 million production. He's the main actor. Yeah, I'm the, a kid from Dewsbury, 
come down with my mum to talk to him. They keep coming in and knocking on his door. Mr. Crow, we're ready for you on set. Yeah, we'll be there soon. And he's saying to us, it's raining. They're not going to use me on set. And I'm getting edgy thinking, oh my God, there's like 200 people waiting for him out there. We sat and spoke for three hours. Wow. Three hours about, not necessarily rugby, not necessarily anything else. We just spoke about life. It, as you would talk to yeah, a friend, you know, for and he, my mum and him gone very well. And she, she was, you know, he basically was trying to comfort my mum in, t- in fact that I'll take care, we'll take care of your son if he comes to our club. And then when I left there, that's when we started talking business through email and trying right. to get a deal organised because it was it was complex. I was in a contract at Bradford, um, but I, I couldn't shake my burning desire to go to Australia. So it was a hard conversation to have at the time. And what was it about him, like beyond the star power yeah. of his name, what was it that he was telling you that gave you that reassurance of, I want to now go and commit myself for the next five years? I'll give you the totally honest answer. I was looking to go anywhere. Right. I wanted to go anywhere. I wanted to go and play in that league. It could have been for any club, but Russell was the guy that had the courage to take the chance. I would, I'd been ringing Des Hasler three times a week on the way to training. Right. I'd, I'd ring him in the morning. I'd leave him voicemails since Sam Burgess here. I'd and been, who was Des in charge of at that uh, time? Manly is in charge Manly, of Manly yeah. at the time. Steve, Steve Menzies was playing at Bradford. He'd put me in touch with him. You know, but I figured that, geez, he's not really. He's, it was a big task to get me out of my contract and to get me over to Australia. And I, I genuinely believe that we met for the right reasons, if there's fate or whatever it is, yep. that we, were, me and Russell were meant to meet. And um, I believe he was probably the only only guy that had the power, the courage, the belief and the vision that, to make it happen. You know, so we, we came into each other's lives at that at a perfect point. And, you know, but you know, I wouldn't say... It was him necessarily that blew me away or the fact that, you know, the club yeah. didn't really blow me away at the time. Um, I didn't know enough about them. But once I got in Australia, I fell in love with South Sydney almost instantly. And is it true? I, I, I can't remember if you told me this or I've heard it, that didn't they allocate a seat in the stands with your dad's name on it? Oh, man. They got me off guard. Caught me off guard big time. Go on, tell us so about I'd, that. I've been in the country for... You know, maybe two two or three months and my profile was growing though. And uh, we played a, a trial game at Redfern, which is our spiritual home of the club of South Sydney. And uh, they'd sold all these tickets that I was playing the game. Me and Dave Taylor, who was the other new signing, were playing the game. But I'd injured Dave Taylor in training that week. So he pulled out of the game. So I was the biggest profile player. We were playing against Manly and it was all there. So none of their real first grade players. But I was actually kind of nervous. They were in the press saying, oh, we want a piece of salmon. So I'm thinking, oh, here we go. You know, I've got to play this game against these kids. I don't know who they are. Can't watch any vision. I can't really review anyone. So I'm getting a bit fired up and I can feel there's a bit of energy in the place. So I go to the stadium and um, there's a good energy. Russell came down to the chamber and said, come, come with me. Walked up the stairs, onto the turf. It's about maybe 50 minutes before kickoff. He walks me around the back of the um, sticks. I'm on the ground here. I'm like, I'm looking at Redfield, Redfern Terraces, the Housing Commission here. This is energy. People are shouting my name. And Russell just pulled out of his pocket a, a membership card. Oh, I'm going to get choked up. With, he had my um, father's name on it and a couple of things he used to say to me before each game. 
I just didn't expect it. I didn't know where it came from. And I just burst into tears on the field and he presented it to me and he said, no, this is your father's seat in the stadium. It's next to mine. I see it. It's, it'll be a left empty. If you're ever in doubt or you, you want to see him, just look to that seat. It'll be in the stadium forever. And every season uh, I played for the club, or I didn't play for the club, that seat was always bought and purchased uh, for my father. And then as my brothers came over to the club, he used to give each of us a membership card with my father's name on uh, and the, the the quotes that my father would say to us before each game printed on the back. And it just like, from that moment, I'm like, how can you not be connected to the club? Yeah, yeah. It was on the hollow turf for Redfern and it was just a deep connection and, and it just showed, I guess, what who Russell was and how deep he was as a bloke and what he, how much he thought and cared about his players. Um you know, for me, it was, a, it was like I was in floods of tears on the field. I'm about to kick off in 40, 50 minutes and there's thousands of people watching me cry like a baby. I'm like, oh my God. But it was a, it was a really overpowering, like emotional experience that I couldn't control, but it was nice. It was real. It was it was, it was um, authentic. Um, you know, it was just a great touch. It was a really great touch. Wow. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, no, I, I struggled to get that out. <laughs> yeah, no, I know, I know. <laughs> Just tell us a little bit about him, because I know he's a friend of yours, and I know he's been a mentor to you over the years. Like, What would you say has been the best piece of advice that he's passed on to you that, that you could share with our listeners? I mean, with Russell, he's just such an intuitive guy. Um, he'll always remind me to raise your vision above the horizon. Right, and you know when you think about it, it's obviously saying you know it's, well, the horizon's here. He said, but just raise up. He said, just to see, you might see more, you know. And I think it's a great, it's a great, great saying. Raise your vision just above the horizon, and um, you know I think he's constantly throughout uh, 12, 13 years of friendship. He's he's constantly whenever I've had a, a moment of self doubt or whilst I was younger, I was, could have been a bit stubborn and aggressive in my approach. He would just be calm. He's lived a lot of life himself, been in some manic situations, but you know, having that calm, constant voice throughout my life and career to just remind me to be balanced and just raise your eyes for a second, have a different look. Yeah, it's, and that that's that. yeah, yeah. It's just when you close your eyes and you picture that, uh, just raise your eyes slightly above that. Just have another look. Yeah. I always think it's, you know, and that's probably a great bit of guidance to give me, but there's been so, so much. He's a man who's a fountain of wisdom and knowledge. It's like, you know, my, probably my greatest coach, Wayne Bennett. If you sit and ask me what's the greatest bit of advice he's ever given you, I couldn't tell you. Yeah. And, and, like, I don't think he could tell you. It's, it's, a, it, it's something that you learn around those people over time. You just pick up something from them that they don't realise they're teaching you or they don't realise that they're influencing you with it. They just have this innate ability to inspire um, or to make you think a bit better and see things from a different perspective. It's that famous quote in it, isn't it? You don't remember what they say, it's yeah. how they make you feel. Yeah, exactly that. Now, I'm going to ask about coaching in a minute, but I want to just check one other thing. that yeah. uh, so I'll tell you who told me this, Matt, yeah, yeah. Matt King. Oh, yeah. Is this true that... Russell Crowe once arranged that Al Pacino did a team talk for you at the at the Sydney Opera House where he delivered his uh, inch by inch speech. <laughs> no, that's not true. It's not true. It's not true. You want it to be true, don't you? Yeah, I do. It's not. I, I, well, if it was, I wasn't there. 
He's did Al Pacino? Some... Did he bring Al Pacino in to meet, or did you arrange? I've him? met Al Pacino. I don't know if it, with, but it was with Russell. I don't think he was at the football. I don't think. I think it was. Uh, I met him in America. He's had some. He's had some interesting books and characters <laughs> come in and do some speaking. Yeah, he's had some. He's had some interesting people in there. But I, I, don't, I can't remember Al Pacino. When we're talking then about great coaches, let's talk about. You've made the brave decision to come to to come back to England. You're yeah. going to leave the sport that you've been reared in, rugby league, and you're going to stretch your comfort zone again to go into rugby union. Yeah. What was your rationale behind that? Well, there was a, a couple of things behind the decision. Um, I'd always, I'd always, at some point in my career, wanted to come and play rugby union. I'd never played before, so I didn't know the game well whatsoever. But again, I, I believed that I could pick it up. And I didn't think there'd be a vast change of my skill set. Uh, we'd just be trying to fine tune that. But why I left early, I, you know, maybe looking back at leaving Australia at that moment in my career, um, I made a choice. It was a really hard choice. Like it was just, I believed in something, and I, I didn't feel it was happening at the time. So I, I said, okay, I'm going to leave because, and funny enough. Making that thing, well, if this doesn't change, I'm going to go. It took for me to say I'm going for it to change. I wasn't happy that it changed in that last year, my 2014 year. Um, what was it that you were looking to change? At the time, the environment that we were in, there's a lot of people looking sideways about, you know, I, I was extremely high profile at the time in Australia. You know, so with that brought a, a, a lot of outside work or different promotions or whatever and, I felt like people were, we, and we lost in 13, we lost again, we should have won the competition, but we lost on small margins. Um, but, you know, and that, that happens in sports sometimes. And I took the loss very hard, and then I disagreed with some of the things that were said in, like when we reviewed that year, and some of the ways we managed losing and what we put losing down to, I didn't believe in that. Right. Um, so I, I challenged it, and it wasn't met. Uh, I didn't think with honesty. If I didn't have my brothers at South Sydney, I probably would have not gone back. I'd have stayed. I'd, I came and played in 2013 World Cup um, in England, yeah. and I just got so lost in that World Cup and so dedicated to trying to win. We had an, an amazing tournament. We, yeah. we were so close. Um, I played some, some of the best games of my career in that, that World Cup. I just felt free. I don't know why I've just felt out of the the headlines. Uh, it was a, a nice place to play. I went back and said I'm, I'll do one more year, but I'm I've, I'm going to rugby union. That's it. Um, and I almost said like I need the decision to be made before the season kicks off, so there's no distractions through the year. I don't want the press to be able to come and have shots at us all year and me and the team. Yeah. I said let's get the deal done. We won't talk about it again. I'll be directing the press and say I will not discuss rugby union for the until I get become a rugby union player now. Yeah. So don't ask me that question. If you ask me the question, I'll, I'm out. So it was a really hard line to take, but you know, and all the the sideways looking that was happening before stopped, and everyone's focus became narrow. You know, like the complaining about certain different things stopped, and um, you know, so I, I'm not sure that would have changed if I didn't make that call. Right, okay. So, you know, that was one of the reasons for coming over. And then by the time it came out, I really didn't think about rugby union at all for the whole year. I was so yeah. focused on the 2014. But then when I came to rugby union, it was a great challenge than I expected. But, I, like, I thoroughly enjoyed that challenge. And deciding to come and do it, 
Um, I didn't realise how big a, the transition would be until I got here. So, and by that point, it's it's do or die. So, because what always impresses me about that, Sam, is that you've established a stellar reputation, and yet you then have the courage to risk failing in something new. So, how did you almost part your ego to be able to say, "I'm going to learn something from scratch," and mm. I'm prepared to start at the bottom again, if you like? It was a hard. It was a hard challenge. It was actually. It was a hard challenge. Um, Partly with my ego, like I had, I had some, I had, I had enough belief in myself to make a, a good fist of an opportunity. Yeah. But it, it was hard when I first came to rugby union. I'd gone from we just won the grand final, um, and played like a, a big role in that game to coming and playing. When I first started playing at Bath, I was playing first team on a Saturday for twenty minutes off the bench, and then I'd play on a Monday night with the A team. I'll never forget I played at Exeter away on a Monday night it would have been minus one degrees 300 people in the stadium and there was a guy there I'll never forget him he had his dog he had his dog on a lead and he came to echo me he paid his £10 in to watch that game just to shout at me the whole game and I could hear everything I was saying right. it was echoing through the stadium he said you shit you rubbish go back to and I'm thinking oh He's right, this block should go back. What am I doing? I'm looking around, it's cold, I'm hardly touching the ball. That was hard. That was, that was hard to manage. Yeah, yeah. You know, but um, I, I really dived into it. I, I dived into it. I met a guy called Don McPherson. Yeah. Um, he's, a, he's a psychologist, sports psychologist. Um, right. He works predominantly with, F, or he was at the time, predominantly with F, F1 car drivers. So he'd do... Um, like visualization meditation almost i'd say like a hypnosis okay right but i was constantly my target height approaching a breakdown was constantly too high i couldn't change it muscle memory 20 years of playing rugby league i was used to hitting around here and coming in up tall and, and holding the you know yeah. to change that overnight was extremely hard i went to meet him i sat in his house we sat i sat there for four hours so we, Good conversation. I really liked his energy. He's a good man. He cared. He listened, and he said he thought he could help me. He said he had this technique where he does visualization meditation. And at the time, I'd been doing a lot of meditation, and I found it helped me enormously as a both as an athlete and as a just as a human being. Um, so I was willing to dive a bit deeper, and so we'd sit there and I'd talk him through what I wanted to change in my game, change the level of approach and in contact and he would ask me the terminology I would say to myself and how I would tell my body to okay. do that so he would use the words that I would use and he would go away he'd make a recording and he's you know it's like a like a guided meditation recording but it's like a 45 minute meditation I'd, I'd put my earphones in and lay down and I'd start meditating and before I knew it he was talking to my subconscious and it's like I'm seeing me attack okay. breakdowns at a lower uh, at a lower space I went to training the next day. Like I hit the breakdown where I wanted to hit it at the right at the right height. And I'm going, oh my god, that's fascinating. And what he was saying is these over a week's worth of this visualization meditation, you can almost get ten thousand hours of learning. Which I mean, you might say I'm not sure about that, but for me, instantly it worked. Right. I I adjusted my contact height. And I started making better progress. So I used him for a few different areas of my game that I thought were very valuable in rugby union, in the rock. Yeah. Um, you know, presenting the ball, my contact height, 
and it it improved me out of sight. My game just like flew like that. So he actually ended up coming and working at, at the club with a few other players because he was. I found him so beneficial. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so so that was one one thing I did. I delved deep into into thinking outside the square, yeah. trying to get an edge and trying to jump the the ladder as quick as I could. You know, and I progressed to. Um, at Bath, uh, I had great two great centres in Kyle Eastman and Jonathan Joseph, who at the time were both playing for England in those positions. Um, so they picked me as a flanker. So <laughs> I had to start learning the game as a flanker. Um, so, you know, I was constantly being challenged. And again, I had a deadline at the end of the season with Bath, and then it was into the World Cup year. Yeah. You know, we had a great year with Bath. We we made the final, we made the Premiership final. Um and we got beat by Saracens, who were like a star-studded team. And that was my first year in rugby union. I played 80 minutes at flanker in that in that final, and probably had one of my better games as a rugby union player. And you know, managed to keep chipping away and chipping away, and managed to get in the England squad. So, when you get called up for the England squad, then how are you dealing with this? Because, as I said earlier, I've always seen you as like the glue guy. I put you in the squad, and you'll bring everyone together, and yet. From an outside perspective, you're a divisive figure. Mm. You're this guy that's been drafted in from rugby league. You've, I remember it was Luther Burrell that was dropped for you yeah. and your name. How are you coping with being put in that polarizing position? Yeah, I mean, you said it there. From the out, it was an outside position. It wasn't. Right. It wasn't the inside position. Um, you know, if you ask anyone that was involved in that tournament um, and that's the, the squad that, that well, if people have got the courage to be honest then it, it wasn't the case you know so it, it was essentially an outside position but you know yeah. and there are agendas but also you know that the the system and how that worked that that world cup campaign initially there were 50 players selected or 55 that was to be cut down to 32 man squad now i quickly worked out there was eight centers and they were only going to take four so then, then it becomes a different thing, you know. Like I had to assert myself in, in training and yeah. uh, to give the coaches confidence to select me as one of the four. So there, there is a competitive edge of me in there. But in terms of a team environment, there was agenda from the outside, from the you know, from from the press or people. But um, it, it wasn't the case on the inside. So and I never really. It's funny when I came back to England, I wouldn't have a clue where to buy a paper or what paper to buy so I, I, you know I've just never grown up reading papers so it was never a case of I walk in the shop and look at it and see what's going on I never knew what was really going on outside of yeah, yeah. my internal bubble so you've been part of like you describe yourself the 2013 World Cup that you play in you've had your best game you had that lovely phrase that you felt free mm. and you get to the semi-finals and mm. get narrowly beat to New Zealand you know you've then led a team to win the grand final. So what was different with those environments where you were successful to that England team in that World Cup campaign that ended up in being knocked out in the in the early stages? Well, at the time, it was glaringly obvious for me, but I, I had to walk a really fine line in that, in that environment. This was one of the hardest moments for me to manage my leadership style in that environment because... I'm new to the ro roster, um, but I could see some things that were like glaringly, obviously not right. But having the courage to change that so soon, I, it was actually a really hard position for me because I'm also trying to build relationships, earn respect, earn trust, which I didn't have. 
Yeah, I, yeah. I didn't. I just didn't have. And that's the one I shot. And I didn't. I didn't know the game well enough in terms of. I'd not been around long enough to challenge some of these. Like what? Yeah. What were you seeing? I was seeing a lot of um, talking behind closed doors. A lot of um, gossiping. You know, a lot of uh, disrespect. Which you know, it's it's very hard to have success when when that's going on in the background, especially through some senior players. Now, it's funny, you know, you look at that England Rugby Union squad, the coaching staff especially, you know, Stuart Lancaster, after the World Cup, he got sacked or wherever he stood down. He's gone on to Leinster. He's been the Leinster head coach for six years. The last four years have been the most dominant team in the whole of Europe. Okay, So it's not like he's a, he wasn't a great coach. Andy Farrell, who was the assistant coach, He's now head coach of Ireland. They're currently number one in the world. Yeah. Uh, Graham Roundtree, um, he's at Munster, and they've improved outside in the last four years since he's been there. Uh, and Mike Cat is off being... To, that was our coaching staff. The accomplished coaches have gone on into the next phase of their careers and gone on to be ultra successful, not just won a few games over here and there. Number one national team in the world, Ireland yeah, yeah. at the moment. Leinster, number one team in, in, in Europe. Graham Roundtree's taken Munster to a different place. And Mike Katz has been successful where he's been. It's like, so you you had accomplished people in, in leadership roles, but I just don't think the players are willing to pay the price to be successful. I can sit here and say that now. And if players from that environment had the courage and, and the honesty to come out and say it, then I think you'd hear it from a few more people. But, you know, I, I think a lot of them, don't like to be honest with it because it was a failed year and it was it was easy for them to point a finger at a few different things yeah you know throughout the year but from that campaign there's no not one bit of regret for what i gave to my country to the team in those in those of course i made mistakes as as new to the game but someone sent me a funny stat the other day of when uh whilst playing for england rugby union I was. We were never behind on the scoreboard whilst I was on the field. Right. Never once, except uh, we played against Australia at Twickenham. I was on the bench. They brought me on with 15 minutes to go, and we were losing. That's the only time I was ever behind on the scoreboard. Wow. Yeah, it's you. Know, it's funny when you think about that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's funny, you know. Like every time I went on, we were leading, and every time I started, we were winning until I was brought off the field. You know. So when I look at that, I, my contribution to my country and to the game. Um, I, I was extremely happy with it, but essentially, I, I didn't love it enough. I had two trains of thought, right? When I'm sat, I was sat in my home at Bath, the World Cup had finished. I actually had to go back and put, I played for Bath. I played one game. I got sent. I got yellow carded because I hit someone. I hit someone in the chest, and I thought it was a fair tackle. But he said the tackle was too aggressive, so I was yellow carded. I thought, oh my god, like, what am I doing? Do I really want to be here? Like it's just a constant battle f- for my mind in terms of it's not who I am, you know. Then, but then there was the other side of me saying, "No, Sam, stay here, come back, captain the country, lead them to like the next World Cup." But my, I was doing that to prove people that I really didn't care about as much wrong. Yeah, I wasn't doing it for me or for the reasons that I really value. Yeah, yeah. You know, I wasn't doing it. You know, and I had it's like. Epiphany that I was sat, it sounds like I was sat in my bath at home and uh, I thought, geez, my career's really short. You get, if you're lucky, 15 years in the seat. I don't want to spend five years somewhere that I'm actually 
not enjoying it 100 percent so i made a pretty harsh decision to get back in the nrl and close to my family as soon as i could wow yeah yeah, so. <laughs> wow. But that almost takes you back to the very start of being around people that you love, yeah, yeah. people that you yeah. care about yeah. and on a mission mm. that to make yourself happy. Mm. And that's pretty much a great place to go into our quick fire questions then, Sam. So we always wrap up the interview with some uh, quick fire questions. So what are the three non-negotiables that you and the people around you must buy into? I think being your authentic self yeah. is is very important. It's it's got the most um, where you can hold that forever. It's yourself. I think work ethic. If you have a good work ethic, you can you can manage most problems and you can become better. And I'd say honesty. If you can be honest with yourself and you can be honest with your team. Um, so I think if you combine those three things together, you can really have a good chance of reaching your potential. What advice would you give to a teenage Sam just starting out on his journey? Uh, <laughs> just take a breath. Take a breath every now and then. Um, you know, I remember whilst I was younger, um, sometimes I could be very um, quick to make a decision. But, you know, I, I don't regret that. I, I don't regret the decisions I made. I, you know, I, I stand by most of them. <laughs> just raise your eyebrows above the horizon every now and then. If you could go back to one moment in your life, what would it be and why? If I could go back and just sit there in that conservatory for one more day, <laughs> just sit there with my dad and sort of tell him about the the last 15 years, really, uh, tell him about my brothers. and So, I mean, without getting too deep, that's where, if you give me one day, I'd go back to that one day. How important is legacy to you? It never was. I never thought of it, but um, now I guess I'm retired. I guess it, I've, I think it was a really important part of my mindset. You know, I I didn't really ever think this is what I want to leave behind. Oh, this you know, this is what I want to create. But um, when I look back, I think actually I, I was creating it. I was trying to create a legacy. Um, so I, I do think, you know, I think it's important, yeah. And the final question is, what's your one golden rule to live a high-performance life? Being authentic. Being authentic and honest with yourself, and then you can really maximise your potential. Brilliant. Well, thanks, Sam. It's been a privilege. No, thanks, Damien. Thanks for having me on. It's great. Well, it's a little bit of a different wrap-up this week because I've not got Jake with me, but I still think it's worth us just doing a reflection on the incredible lessons that Sam shared with us in that conversation. And there's a number of things I'd like you, having listened to it, just to maybe reflect on yourself. So the first one was the distinction between confidence and belief. And Sam spoke really powerfully about building good habits and identifying those moments when you just tick a box in your head. And when you do that for when it doesn't count, you know that when it does, you already have the resources and the ability in the bank. It's that phrase that I frequently use on the podcast of confidence is built from evidence. So we have to look for moments where that evidence is there, store it, so that we can call on it in the moments when it really does matter. There's another point that Sam made to us there about the importance of his dad was putting him through a masterclass in the lessons needed to grow up. And I think there's something powerful for that for all of us that are parents and the way that we're teaching our children the skills that they're going to need as adults. I think there was something really quite profoundly moving about Sam's final message around the fact that his dad taught him to care and to love for others. There was another really important point that I think is worth dwelling on, was 
Just the ability to be a sponge in any environment. Sam spoke about how he was learning from his dad and his illness, but he also spoke about going into that dressing room for the first time and going in there just with a quiet humility to soak up as much information as he could that could teach him the lessons that he eventually took with him when he reached the summit of his sport. And then the final point I'd like to just reflect on is that relentlessness that he had in terms of going looking for feedback when he was knocking on the manager's door, finding out what he needed to do next and then applying it. There's something there for all of us to be able to take away in our own lives that nobody's the finished article, that there's always something that we can learn. But the important point is being open to the lessons from it. I'm really grateful for those of you that have made the time to listen to these specials. So rugby league's an incredibly special sport with, as you've heard today, some incredibly special people in it. And over the next few weeks, we'll be meeting some more of these characters who've got some incredible lessons to share with us. So I'll look forward to sharing the next one coming soon. Well, look, I really hope you enjoy that. Don't forget, if you want more from the High Performance Podcast, you can watch the episodes on YouTube. Always worth doing. You can buy our book. We've got our journal coming out uh, very shortly. We're going on tour next year. And if you want to get information about all of that stuff, just go to thehighperformancepodcast.com. That's thehighperformancepodcast.com. And you can find it all. But huge thanks to Sam Burgess for coming on and speaking so emotionally and so honestly with Damien. Of course, thanks to Damien for hosting such an amazing conversation. Thanks to the whole team behind the podcast. We're back with another Rugby League World Cup special very soon. But remember, there is no secret. It is all there for you. So chase world-class basics. Don't get high on your own supply. Remain humble, curious and empathetic. And we'll see you very soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.